What if mass mimetic experiments could, with a lot of tact and a bit of luck, escalate into genuine crises for the ruling class order, opening the window for mass experiments in non-economic sharing and self-organization? Might the meme be how insurrections get started in the 21st century? On a previous episode of Prolet Cult, I talked to Joshua Citarella about meme magic, radicalization, and revolution. To stay with the topic, our guest today is meme professor Meg. Hi, Meg. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Would you like to just introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so my name is Meg Williams. I also go by May or Mega May on Instagram as well as Twitch. I have a big interest in memes that definitely grew out of using memes as a coping mechanism for my uh, various uh, mental health ailments, as I think <laughs> memes actually and the internet actually uh, serves that purpose for a lot of people. But the point is that, you know, I learned a lot about memes and about meme culture. And then once things kind of calmed down for me personally, I started to really develop an interest in mimetic theory. And just to clarify for whoever might be listening, when we say meme, what we generally mean is actually internet meme. And the concept of the meme is actually larger than that. A meme, as first defined by Richard Dawkins, is a unit of imitation. And that is essentially what I feel the question is today, is how can these units of imitation be used and be employed, and how can we look at mimetic theory as a way, you know, to cause these crises that ultimately lead to change? So, yeah, that's my little intro. So, yeah, we're going to be about different kinds of memes today. Therapeutic memes, <laughs> uh, internet memes, uh, non-internet memes. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot about this one essay, which I just quoted, called Memes Without End by Adrian Wollaben, um, which argues that an analysis of the recent uprisings in Hong Kong, Chile, France, the United States, and elsewhere show a categorical difference between the social movements of liberalism and the left and the real movements of proletarian belligerents that push them forward. And these social movements are based on advancing the grievances of social constituencies vis-a-vis existing institutions, while the real movement initiates a radical break with the dominant order as it immediately creates its own power. So the key difference between the social and the real movements are the way they are led. Social movements are led by identities. Uh, You could say a certain marginalized group or even the working class. Whereas the real movement is led by symbols and gestures like the yellow vests of France, turnstile hopping in Chile, and umbrella-wielding frontliners in Chile. And these are essentially memes, are they not? Yeah, yeah, these are these are essentially memes. They're ideas or symbols or gestures, which was like the really big emphasis in memes without end is how these gestures can be carried on. And especially with something like turnstile jumping, we saw that that started in 
Chile and then was copied all over the world in the US, um, in Europe and other places. And the that might seem like just a gesture or whatever, but at the same time, it is demanding something that many feel should be free, that people who, quote unquote, you know, live in a society should be able to get around and should have access to public transportation. And that's something that the ruling class really doesn't jive with as uh, public transport so much. Um, but it's something that is very important to working people to be able to get around. And seeing other people take that power back through this gesture, it not only is important in the moment, but it's important conceptually because the thing is someone might participate in this gesture without understanding the connection between demanding public services and, um, you know, demanding the right to get around and things like that. They might not in the moment understand how that's connected to, you know, insurrectionary politics, but maybe they go home later and they think about it or they read something online or they re read theory or something and they can then connect that like real life experience, that gesture to a larger conceptual idea. Yeah. Ex and I think that's exactly what he's getting at is, um, you know, maybe a, a social movement kind of strategy against uh, transit fares would be to organize a, a commuters union or something mm -hmm. like this one identity has a certain demand and they take action around this demand. Whereas these uh, instances of the real movement have been led by these, these liberatory gestures that everybody kind of participates in as an individual without any kind of specific identity. I mean, in Chile, it was led by students, but certainly not just students and certainly not all of them may have had the same conception of, of what they were after or who they were besides just, I want to get on the subway for free. And you see similar sorts of non-ideological or, um, I don't know, depoliticized uh, ruptures in, uh, in, in other places like Hong Kong and Ecuador, the United States. These aren't necessarily led by the traditional social movements. Um, but what we're talking about here is obviously not internet memes because a lot of the political talk about internet memes has been like, wow, did, uh, did Pepe make Trump president? Uh, we're talking gestures, tactics to a lesser extent, ideas, political ideas, um, ideas about, you know, how society should be, how we ought to live. So is this within the realm of the memes that you study? Yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely say that, especially once I actually began a serious study of memes, I, you know, you immediately realize how large of an idea it is and how internet memes are just kind of like a subcategory. And some things that are true of internet memes are not going to be true of memes writ large. And some things, you know, but most things true of memes writ large are going to be like true of internet memes, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, one big thing as far as gestures, it's interesting to say, oh, did Pepe, you know, make Trump president? Well, 
Maybe, but you could also argue that Trump was very, very effective at creating his own memes and his own gestures. Because, for example, on the internet, you will actually see people who, like, will write a tweet that is making fun of Trump's cadence and the way that he talks and saying, you know, wow, this is the best ever thing. It's so sad, all capitals, that people can't enjoy this, you know, that kind of thing. And him having such a distinct style of talking caused a lot of people to be interested in that distinct style of talking and also to repeat it. And he was also really good at understanding what types of ideas are going to catch on. Like, for example, uh, when Hillary called, um, you know, Trump voters deplorables, well, the Trump team and the Trump campaigners immediately seized on that idea and propagated it forward, you know, and used that idea and claimed that idea and said, yeah, we're deplorables, whatever, you know, and... So this understanding of emetics and of things being repeated, especially if you look at the way that Trump used misinformation, you know, he was more interested in saying something that people would want to repeat rather than saying something that was like good, true or wholesome, (laughs) you know. So him understanding that and understanding memetics, yeah, it's it's. It's large. It's a large concept. And some may argue too large, but, you know, we don't have to go there. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a really fascinating uh, route to go down because, of course, he became, I think his skills as a politician came obviously not from being a politician, but by being an entertainer, Uh, you know, first as this kind of guy who's famous for being famous as a real estate tycoon and then as a reality show host. And I think he understood through this uh, being a purveyor of of trash, be it like uh, faux luxury properties or uh, faux reality television, that people aren't really interested in the reality of the product. They're interested in the branding, in a kind of um, you know secondhand uh, experience with fame. Um, so he did, Trump didn't have to be actually a good politician to people or a smart guy to people or really a billionaire to people people just were entertained by his shtick and he kept pounding the shtick over and over again and in the same way memes don't have to be telling the truth or have to propose a specific political program um and so they don't really have to be anything for people to follow them kind of blindly but obviously with trumpism there's a real danger to that because you get all of these people who are anti-establishment, who are uh, sick of the political class, just being led anew into the swamp, as it were. Um, and so at the same time where there's a, the p- potential of these memes to organize these mass ruptures with the current order, uh, there's also a danger. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And that's really going to be the work going forward, seeing how we can use this framework of memetics in order to analyze politics and, you know, 
cause some crises of our own, but at the same time, like crises for crises sake is not necessarily going to be what moves things forwards in a direction that we like. And so that's really kind of the way I conceive of it is that a lot of the time we have a huge push forward from the bottom up where people are just angry about something, something justified. Let me just clarify, but they're angry about a cause. And so they go out into the street and it is just a movement of this mass of people and there's a lot of attention given to it. And it wasn't necessarily planned. It's just people doing this gesture all together. And so there's this mass movement forward. And then after that occurs, there seems to be the social movements will move in and attempt to harness this power and this energy into things that have to do with the state. And these might be things that are, that would be good for the majority of people, which is kind of where you get the contradiction to come in, right? Um, cause if there's a legislative issue that can be pushed and a legislative problem that can be solved, it's hard to argue against people doing that. But on the other hand, it's, not necessarily going to lead, let me put it this way, getting some kind of legislative victory or getting the type of victory that liberal social movements tend to be striving for actually perpetuates the issue in certain ways. So if we look at... um New York State, for example, just to give an example, um, there's obviously a huge police brutality issue in New York State, as there is all across the country. But there was a push, and that push succeeded to take away qualified immunity with it, from police officers within New York State, meaning that they have the police and the NYPD and whatever in the state, they have to give information on cases regarding police brutality to the public, and um, police officers cannot be immune from being prosecuted. So the point is that that's something that passed, and that's something that happened, but to say that we no longer have a police brutality problem in the state of New York would be completely false, and I think very absurd. And so... It's kind of like this symbiosis thing. And also it's really interesting in that in the essay Memes Without End, talking about the ways in which social movements have kind of mapped their trajectory. And one of those ways is by finding an issue that they want to work on or something they care about and then thinking backwards and being like, okay, who can we go and do the outreach for in order to get the relevant communities involved in this? And yeah, that's like a very non-profity framework that is going to be very, very specific. And a big thing that we have an issue with on the left, I think, right now 
especially because the word the left is extremely ill-defined and <laughs> liberals would maybe call themselves part of the left. But um, I'm talking like, you know, progressives and leftward. But the point is that like a big issue right now is the fact that we all kind of think something different. Every little flavor of like left-wing politics has its own little enemies and its own little set of historical rivalries that kind of pushes people away from each other. And I think the gesture actually gets around that in a very, very interesting way. But at the same time, the reason that like organizations put themselves forward in these social movements is because organizations can and will control the message. And unfortunately, you know, that's the challenge is if you have so many people with so many different ideas coming into one space, like they can cause a crisis, but to what end, you know, that's, that's kind of the worry, but that's not to say that gesture will not be a fruitful place. It just means that, you know, we have to work through it. Yeah, and, and um, this essay, uh, Memes Without Ends by uh, Will Laban, is really trying to struggle with this tension between these organized groups that you mentioned and the, uh, this, what he calls the real movement. The, um, so we could think of, in terms of the George Floyd uprising, the real movement obviously being the people in Minneapolis, mostly people in the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed, like very upset about that, upset about the police... Uh, you know, trampling the a memorial to George Floyd, I believe. And um, they were the ones who really began this whole nationwide, even international uprising by burning down the police station where these cops worked. Um, and then after that, you get these organizations pushing policy proposals like defunding the police and in qualified immunity. You get politicians wearing dashikis. And the theory is... Uh, Wooly even kind of weighs this theory that maybe the social movement is actually um, smothering or clobbering the real movement. Um, but he's also not saying that one is good and the other is bad. Uh, he seems to think that there needs to be some kind of synthesis. I'll read from his conclusion. How do we pivot from demolitionism to collective experiments in non-monetized sharing? How do we suppress and deactivate the organs of representation that seek to incorporate and disarm us? The Democratic Party, for example. How do we exit the terrain of the social while creating spaces of communion, desertion, and contact along the way? So he, he thinks that it's good that we have these, uh, this tendency towards demolition or attacking the carceral apparatus head on, uh, but at the same time, how does that allow people to actually change the way they live or uh, build their own power? Yeah, it's a really, really, it's a really, really good question. Truly, truly good question. And when I read that, and when I read that, it made me think of all the people that got involved in on-the-ground mutual aid as a result of the economic and social how do I say it? Like the economic and social upheaval that happened as a result of the George Floyd protests happening at the same time as a major pandemic where the government and the NGOs were not necessarily 
getting the resources to the people that needed them most. And this confluence of social uprising and natural disaster really got a lot of people interested in mutual aid. And I would like to make the distinction at this time between the way that we use the idea of mutual aid on the internet and the way that it happens in the streets or that Kropotkin might have like described. Uh, so a lot of times on the internet, we see calls for mutual aid that are actually fundraisers for individuals. And I'm not going to say that's not a form of mutual aid, but at the same time, I don't think it has the same revolutionary potential as communal and place-specific mutual aid does. So, for example, if someone is in a neighborhood and founds a fridge in that neighborhood, like a free fridge where people can just go and get free food, and this idea became very, very popular during the pandemic, especially in 2020, there were a bunch of fridges that were founded both in, I know of ones in Philadelphia and New York, just because those were the places I was, but there are several fridges and several mutual aid programs founded within those places. And a true mutual aid project is going to be one where there is a horizontal decision-making structure where it is tied to a specific locality that way, you know, you're going to meet the people on your block and you're going to talk to the people on your block and, you know, you're going to ask them what they need in a very immediate sense. And when people see that their needs are being provided for as another kind of, you know, mimetic gesture of mutual aid, they're going to become more interested in, hey, why can't this be society? People are just leaving this food in the fridge. There's obviously enough food to go around. Like, why can't this be what society is like? And so that individual gesture of mutual aid can be so informative to people while also fulfilling their immediate needs and introducing them to their neighbors you know, in this way. So it's kind of like the way I look at it is a lot of the work that I try to do and that I encourage others to do is to try to build a new society in the shell of the old one. And the reason that mutual aid is more useful in doing that than something like a legislative reform is because the legislation, the legislature, the idea of legislation is something that will hopefully fall off in a new society. <laughs> and instead, we will have, you know, more localized networks that provide what people need and localized communities that provide what people need. But hey, that's just me on my individual <laughs> ideological soapbox uh, right there. But um, but yeah, so... Well, I happen to... Uh really agree with you on that. In fact, I wrote a um, science fiction short story for my newsletter. I'll put it in the show notes uh, where I speculate about what would happen if the internet went out uh, in, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, uh, near where mm. I live. And um, I think that at this moment, 
the mutual aid networks who have sprung up during the pandemic would kind of just instinctively know what to do in terms of um, filling the gap of the economy that that goes out alongside the internet. Um, so I think there is potential for for mutual aid as long as there's not too sudden a collapse to kind of step in and and transition from one uh, very economic way of living to another where everything is is shared, um, not based on uh, social status, but based on just people's needs. Um, and that's, you know, obviously a very optimistic understanding of mutual aid, but I don't think that's so wrong to do. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I also think just mutual aid is a very, very powerful idea because it resists institutionalization and it resists stagnation. And I guess that's partially because like if you have a mutual aid project and you have a horizontal decision-making structure and you're dealing with this one very local need and very local issue, and then a nonprofit comes in and tries to run it, like I'm going to guarantee a hundred percent that that nonprofit is not going to have the same type of decision-making structure, and it's going to turn into a food bank. And while food banks are all well and good, it's not the same type of thing. So even having this idea that that allows, you know, people who want to get involved to care for their immediate communities while not being subsumed into the nonprofit industrial complex, that is so powerful because at the end of the day, the nonprofits kind of have been the only show in town for a long time. Okay. I agree with everything that you're saying, but is mutual aid cringe? Is it cringe? <laughs> I mean, well, very, and as far as sincerity is cringe. You go out and help your neighbors. Yeah, it's sincere. <laughs> yeah, it's sincere. And and yeah, it can be kind of an antidote to the irony poisoning that we kind of find ourselves in on the internet, especially because like, I don't know. I don't know who first said it, but I am cringe, but I am free. You know, like my friend likes to, instead of calling being, it's not called being canceled anymore. It's being called being released. You know, like we need to release ourselves a bit from this kind of like internet culture because it, it's like we're so online and the online like left-wing discourse is not generally appealing nor consumable to the general public at all <laughs> you know so it's hard except for podcasts of course yes except for podcasts well what i mean is kind of like um the twitter sphere mm -hmm. you know just um the the twitter sphere and the way people kind of uh it can be very divisive and sectarian and name cally and meme and you know people make a joke of violence and the thing is that at a time when we're still trying to explain to people that like the state is violent and that if you're in a situation where someone is violent to you like you can defend yourself when we're still trying to explain that and then people are, you know, doing memes, so-and-so did nothing wrong type memes, 
you know, um, it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to win people on your side, honestly. And I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I don't think it's productive. Sometimes I do think it is, but that's, that's why I love the Antifada because y'all encourage people to read things and y'all discuss literature. And a lot of times it can just be, things can lack substance. Like, Remember the this was a very successful meme and a very successful gesture was those black squares that ended up completely backfiring mm-hmm. last summer, you know? Yeah, because people recognized it as just posting something and not actually going out and doing what needs to be done. Not that the people who would have posted that would have done anything that needed to be done, but people saw it as what it was, um kind of a way yeah, to just and- keep us online. Yeah, a way to keep us online and what ended up happening was that the hashtags that people were using for on the ground disruption were being flooded with those black squares. Mm -hmm. So people were losing information about what was going on in their local area under the BLM tag, under all these different types of tags like George Floyd. And so you had this like, very empty gesture of the black square actually affecting on the ground politics. And while people really need to actually get away from using social media for the purposes of communication, when we're talking about these like on the ground disruptions in that moment, that's what people were using. And this empty gesture ended up like derailing things, you know? And maybe stopping to think about what, social media was like back uh, last summer and spring. Um, Another thing that you saw a lot about were these infographics of like what's going on, how to help, uh, donate money to these bail funds. Um, And then that kind of moved in this direction of like call these politicians, demand to defund, what have you. Uh, And you can compare that to what it looked like in Um, Hong Kong or in Chile where social media was really about mobilizing uh, like offensive formations really Mm. like you had those charts of like what it meant to be in the protests with different protest roles from Hong Kong Um, in Chile uh, the the big meme was um, Negro Matapacos this dog that was killed in a riot previously uh, who became like the mm-hmm. symbol of of rioting in general, um, and in Hong Kong also Pepe was a big part of the protests, and so I think um, I think maybe these other mimetic uprisings last lacked a certain kind of uh, basedness, um, and just in terms, <laughs> like, obviously nothing was more based than uh, what happened in Minneapolis and the week afterwards around the country, but in terms of its social media representation. It was a lot of people thinking about like, wow, how can I help these people instead of like, how do I join them and go on the offensive myself? Do you remember in Philadelphia, there was like this guy dressed as Elmo in front of like uh, yes. something on fire? I know a lot about Philly, Philly Elmo, actually. <laughs> so Philly, I know way more about Philly Elmo. <laughs> Philly Elmo, I think, anyway, should have been like, it. yeah, you know, that's, that's all I know about it. It's just a, a riot yeah. with, with an Elmo head. I think that could have been like our Negro Matapacos or, or Pepe. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. it was a little bit too, I think too many people were like on this tip of actually all of the writing was done by Nazis and cops. And so they couldn't allow hmm. images like that to be um, 
the message. Yeah, that was a really weird aspect to those protests. But um, yeah, so the deal with Philly Elmo is actually, Philly Elmo is part of a drumline. And drumlines are very important. I, I haven't been in, I've been in Philadelphia for about a year, but what I've learned is that people love drumlines here. And why shouldn't they? Drumlines are amazing. And a lot of the times there are, these drumlines will just join protests because the protests aren't always, they're not seen as these destructive things by the majority of the people in the area. And so Philly Elmo was part of a drumline. And then, of course, because the Philadelphia Police Department is what it is, you know, these things will devolve or maybe people go on the offensive and they want to smash some things and, you know, Philly Elmo's over there. And then, yeah, there was that great image of him uh, captured. And yeah, there was this discourse about who is really doing these destructions. And then, of course, the normal discourse about like, oh, my goodness, what about the small business order owners, you know, and I live in West Philadelphia, and I was here, I moved here a little bit before um, Walter Wallace Jr. was killed in my neighborhood, and, you know, people came down my street looking to cause some trouble, and the block captain just, like, walked out and was like, listen, you need to go down to Center City, you need to go to South Philly or something and cause destruction over there. If that's what you're into. But yeah, it really is. I didn't see any evidence of, you know, people. I don't. It was such a weird thing last summer with people saying it was really white supremacists doing all the the rioting or it was really these people coming in from out of town who just wanted to cause this destruction. Like it was just a way of kind of invalidating the rage that people felt and that like so many people felt. And if, if the proud boys or whomever really had the capacity to make it appear like there were all these people out on the streets for black lives matter when it was really just, you know, um, I don't know, psyop, honeypot, whatever bullshit, like, you know, then, then they have a more huge capacity than we will ever know. Um, a lot of but, people think that. Yeah. Yeah. And a, yeah, a lot of it's it's interesting that they think that. And, you know, unfortunately, the story of of Philly Elmo is a little bit sad. Um, you know, he unfortunately lost uh, his housing and, you know, someone else has now taken on the costume and the gestures of Philly Elmo and the Filiomo from that picture is unfortunately at this point unhoused and in a very tight situation. So um, I believe he's Filiomo 84. If you want to go Venmo him, I, you know, Venmo him a little bit of money because he is really cool and was such a symbol in that moment. But yeah, it's, it's strange. It's strange. I don't, I don't know where that distrust comes from exactly. The, the distrust of, uh, of the rioters, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it just comes from uh, 
a denial that anything can ever change. Like if any if anything mm. happens, that's because if if you ask people before the uprising and or you know even before the pandemic, like can we uh, have a uh, can the pandemic come here and we have a national lockdown? Can there be this nationwide uprising where people burn down police stations and government buildings and loot for a week on end and the police everywhere are just totally blindsided? Most people would tell you no, that that's impossible. The police will kill you. Um, or like uh, the United States is impervious to pandemics or whatever. Um, people mm-hmm. think that the way things are now can never change and they need to believe that. So even after these yeah. things pass people will act like they never happened or it was just a temporary yeah. fluke or the reason why it happened was because of Trump or because of uh, the Proud Boys or because of uh, uh, Antifa or whatever. It has to be some external force that can be contained and defeated instead of recognizing that these are crises that are, are en- uh, endemic to uh, our entire global order. Yes, exactly. And... I think what many people may lack is a long view of history because a lot of the things that I know I took for granted as things that would never change when I was younger, I later found out that those, those things were not even around that long, that the things that I thought had to be around forever haven't even like existed that long. And so I just always encourage people to learn more about history and learn more about the way things used to be and how radically things have changed because we get into this cycle, especially because everybody has to work so hard in order to survive and keep themselves fed and housed that we don't have time to think about these things and we want continuity. And I think one of the most powerful things for me in particular that I found out And that was, people probably knew this before the uprising last year, but it just had never made it to my ears. But people pointed out that if you're in a city that has a lot of cops, you know, Philadelphia, maybe not New York because the NYPD is like a small occupying army. But for example, maybe Philadelphia, maybe Seattle, something like that. And If you have a thousand people in one place protesting and causing whatever disruption they want to cause, the police can like shut that down, maybe not easily, but they can shut that down. But if you have those same a thousand people and you have maybe, I don't know, 200 people in five parts of the city The cops can't shut it down. They are running in between these pressure points. They don't know how to exert the same type of force that they do on people all in the same place. And this was an experience that people had on the streets. And it never occurred to me. Something like that. Something like that. That concept or that idea had never occurred to me. It's this strategy type stuff that people are learning and they're learning through experience. And I had a lot of issues kind of with some of the stuff with the subway protests in New York 
uh, that were going on. I, I had some issues with the organization that was leading it, which we don't necessarily have to go into because it's not important to this example. But the point is that, like, I there were so many people who went out to those subway protests in New York who later were participating in the uprising to the extent that it happened in New York because it was very quickly kind of subsumed into the uh, nonprofit complex. That's a really important point that I think very few people know. This doesn't just come out of nowhere, that there were networks beforehand. And so in New York, those FTP protests inspired by Chile and scenes of NYPD um, beating uh, mostly young black people on the subway, arresting this one Chiro woman. This FTP coalition um, had these protests throughout the winter of 2019 and 2020, these pretty raucous protests. But, you know, they the biggest ones only had a few hundred people in them. And, um, uh, and then I think a lot of those same people and a lot of the, the same sentiments carried over to the riots and, uh, and, and looting and uprising in New York uh, during the George Floyd uprising. But that organization that was behind it was completely made irrelevant because their politics mm-hmm. uh, were something really different than what the George Floyd uprising was all about. For, for example, one thing, like the most common chant at those FTP marches was white people to the front or white people to the back or white people to the sides. It was uh, largely focused on the idea that there needed to be this kind of racial hierarchy in the images and the, the messaging uh, in terms of like who was holding banners, who was on film, who was taking risks. Mm-hmm. And in the streets of New York during the uprising, that, that kind of thinking just wasn't there or at least people weren't expressing it in, um, in the way that the, these more organized protests were. And that's something that this essay, Means Without Ends, is really focused on. Like, how is it that the, these protests that are really about racial discrimination and, and racist violence in the United States have, uh, have overcome race in a way that the, the left and leftist coalitions kind of can't? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting because I think I think one of the major flaws was as much as this organization wanted to see themselves as radical, things were still kind of seen through this identity lens. And while our identities are important, ultimately, that's what the gesture can erase. And sometimes everyone moving together is the most important Thing And of course, we don't want to create spaces that are exclusive or spaces that keep people of certain identities out or spaces where people of certain identities feel uncomfortable. Like that's that's something that we need to always be looking for. But at the end of the day, when you're on the street, everyone is at risk. And it was great that people were willing to put their bodies between the people that might be most affected by police brutality and the police themselves. But the way that it was enforced uh, maybe wasn't the best for long-term movement building. And then it was great that the people who were in that situation, you know, they might instinctively bring that idea forward in a way that is not a forced upon them. 
And that could be good for a movement for people to really understand that there is danger every time you're at a protest. And also to think about how they can protect people around them. But at the end of the day, I think that while identity is an important way to perhaps view your place in the world or things like that, it's good at a, describing oppression. I'm not sure how good the concept of identity is at addressing oppression. Mm -hmm. So that's my hot take on that one. At the same time, <laughs> identity is this, it's, it's natural that people are going to construct their politics and their worldview this way because identity is is what you're given. It's what um, is, is how you are forced to identify and perceive the world. And so coming into these struggles, it makes sense that people really think about identity above all else. Um, but then people need to let it get broken down when things change, when the political reality changes, when the balance of forces change and suddenly uh, young black people run the city, like run Manhattan. <laughs> you know, the, mm -hmm. the police have lost <laughs> control. Um, so uh, that kind of changes the calculus of of how we need to approach things politically. But uh, leftists are um, unfortunately a lot slower to, to learn from these things um, than they should be. Yes, I think so. I think so. And I'm sure there are things that I have been slow to learn myself. <laughs> um, it's This has been a very interesting time. This has been a very, very interesting time. And I think it really has shown us the limitations of focusing on universities, academia as a place of disruption. That's, I think, the thing that's been kind of driven home to me the most, that, you know, going from organizing in the CUNY system, it really was kind of that attitude that, like, hey, there is this decision maker and we need to, need to apply pressure in order to get the decision maker to make a decision and then we need to find out the people who are affected and convince them to agree with us and then do some kind of collective action in order to convince this person da 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 and also just how limited people in this inside of academia are and how um actually divorced they can be, especially full-time professors, can be from the actual material realities of the politics that are going out, going on outside and politics that they might be very interested in or even studying. It's a lot. <laughs> well, I don't know how to make a conclusion from that, but... <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. I mean, just you can look at all of the, the major radical academics... Uh, and, and what have they said about the uprising? What have they contributed? You know, they might have posted something in solidarity. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's probably too much of a generalization. But, uh, I, you know, let's not name names. Um, yeah, of course not. I mean, my whole thing is it's so hard to... It's so hard for me to engage with what some academics have to say because... The academic structure, and I know this isn't the individual academic's fault, uh, it, the adjunct, adjunctification of, is just so unjust. It's hard. 
it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard. So, but you're a, a meme professor, so should we ignore what you have to say about memes? <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if I'm an academic. That was some old branding I had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, you know, I was a hunter adjunct, and then I decided that I had too much pride, you know, and the issue was not that I thought I was being paid okay, kind of, for what I was doing. And also, like, you know, you get health care, whatever. But it was the contingency and it was having to go around to individual departments and kind of, you know, oh, can I please teach a class here for like $3,000? <laughs> no, a semester or something. I don't know. Um, it was more than that. No, it wasn't. Um, now that I remember, it actually wasn't. But yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of changing my branding because honestly, I don't, I, I had to leave the graduate program I was in because of the pandemic and getting a perspective from outside of academia has actually really helped me. And, um, yeah, I don't really do the mean professor branding anymore, but I, you know, cause then I have to explain I'm not really a professor, <laughs> but you know, it's kind of catchy. So I don't, I don't like eschew the branding, you know? So now you're a mean militant Meg. <laughs> yeah, I'm mean militant Meg. That's perfect. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, just one other thing I want to talk to you about before we go. Um, you, sure. A lot of your interest in memes uh, comes from Susan Blackmore, uh, who has introduced this idea of teams or technological memes. And I was wondering if there is some overlap uh with her idea of these uh, technological memes that come to sort of lead us or uh, replicate for their own purposes and not for theirs, um, that's similar to, to Wollaben's concept of the leading gesture in uh, Memes Without Ends. Hmm, very, very interesting question. So I think that any memetic framework has that idea behind it. And by that idea, I mean the idea that memes replicate for their own purposes. And that actually is an idea couched in a metaphor. So we'll have to go back to the selfish gene theory for me to explain this. So the selfish gene theory is the idea that individual genes replicate because they that's what they're built to do that's what they quote-unquote want to do but the thing is when Dawkins was explaining that it was kind it was a metaphor like genes don't want anything they are chemicals and ideas memes don't want anything they're just ideas and the idea of evolution is the idea that while there is no destination to the universe, creation and what exists tends towards increasing complexity. So individual elements and aspects of life tend to come together in order to create more complex beings. Like we have weird bacteria in ourselves 
that was just bacteria that was hanging out next to the cells that eventually evolved into humans. So there became a symbiotic relationship between this, like, bacteria and what eventually became life on Earth. And so I think when we're looking at these teams, like the technological memes, it's almost kind of like the same thing. Everything tends towards complexity because of certain laws of like thermodynamics, technically. And this complexity shows itself through the mixing, intermixing, and through the convergence and divergence of ideas. So, so yeah, I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> hmm, I'm not sure if I totally followed that. Why, why do you, help, help me out. What, what do you think the connection is? So the connection is that everyone's looking at this through a mimetic framework. So, therefore, they're going to have this way of looking at the evolution of things in common. Mm -hmm. So, if we look at um, Memes Without End, where there are these ideas, it's kind of like, so there's this Terry Pratchett book, Men at Arms. And in this Terry Pratchett book, Men at Arms, there is a disembodied idea of a gun. And this disembodied idea of a gun floats through space. And then one day it lands on the disc world and the brain of the Leonardo da Vinci stand-in gets this idea stuck into his brain. And he can't think of anything else but creating this thing he calls a gun. And so in that way, I think maybe, like, these frameworks, there might be these ideas floating around in conceptual space. The same way that there were genes floating around before we had cell walls. And I know this is not really clarifying it <laughs> necessarily, but the connection being that memes have a life of their own and technology seems to have a life of its own and ideas seem to have a life of their own where they outlast their containers. Mm. They outlast the people who first think of them. And so there's a very interesting like existential question is where do these things exist like where do memes exist we don't really know and that's something that like Dawkins acknowledges like he doesn't even understand are they physical structures because they occur within human brains well then maybe they can't occur on the page but it's 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 a very complicated and kind of like philosophical question I think and you know in a way it's like yeah, they're replicating for their own purpose, and they're replicating because they can replicate, and for no other reason. And, yeah. Well, this kind of gets into the this question that's been debated endlessly on the chance of, can we force a meme? 
Exactly. Exactly. Can you force a meme? I don't think the answer is yes. I think that a lot of the way we look at memes and the way that we think about memes is like very metaphorical and very figurative. But at the end of the day, it is a almost biological process, which memes get perpetuated and which don't. Because the thing is, anybody on 4chan can like say whatever, but if there isn't a memetic groundwork within enough people's minds to absorb and perpetuate that meme, then that meme will not be replicated or it will have limited success. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's hard to square with this, uh, the, the Wolleben argument. Um, or it makes it all the more troubling because if these leading gestures are kind of outside of our control or maybe act as if they have their own purpose, um, then it seems like we're kind of just cannon fodder for, for their success. Like the yellow vests are leading us instead of us wearing yellow vests in order to create some new subjectivity. Yeah, well, this reminds me of um, The Crowd at the Ball Game by William Carlos Williams, you know? Um, there is something terrifying in it, and there is something terrifying in collective action. And the question of the question of destruction and creation is a really relevant one. And that's what the nonprofits have that maybe what happens in the street doesn't have. They have they they write press releases. They have decision making structures. I mean you know, maybe at one point decision-making structures are created within, you know, within the streets, but it's something that's not necessarily an afterthought, but an afterformation because it's not necessary for this surge forward. But if, if instead of after the surge forward, people were politicized and drawn into something more akin to mutual aid rather than drawn into the nonprofit industrial complex. Every time there's these disruptions, people can learn new things. And the point is not efficiency in a way, you know, I mean, maybe it'd be cool if we could like think of this one idea or this one gesture that would lead to a major disruption tomorrow. But at the same time, that's the danger because we are so atomized in our society and in some ways so alienated from the very act of living that if there is disruption, where do we go? What do we do? Because at the end of the day, like, I couldn't grow my own food you know, I have a bike so I can like get around, but eventually my car would be useless. And what, what happens after the destruction and after these ideas kind of move forward of their own volition, that's what we have to be looking at. And that's what we have to be kind of preparing for in a way is what happens after and how do we make it so that all this energy doesn't just get subsumed into 
some kind of, you know, policy initiative that's not really going to, at the end of the day, get the goods. Mm. Well, thanks for um, thinking this out with us. With uh, Thank you so much for having me. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where people can find you and, and what you're uh, planning after your professorial career? <laughs> yeah, um, so you can find me on Twitch as well as Instagram. My username on both platforms is Megamay. That's M-E-G-A underscore M-A-E underscore. I've been taking a little bit of a break from Twitch in order to get my life in order because I've always heard that you have to organize yourself before you organize other people. Um, and I should be returning within the next month, but I am always on Instagram. So find me over there, mega underscore May underscore. Thanks a lot, May. Um, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. <laughs>